Today on episode number 368 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Kelvin Bentley joins me to talk about defining our future. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Kelvin Bentley to Teaching in Higher Ed. He has over 19 years of experience in the field of online education as a faculty member, administrator, and consultant. Kelvin currently serves as a digital learning consultant for Success Academy Charter Schools. Kelvin has written recent articles on digital learning for publications that include Educause Review and Inside Higher Education, and He and members of Tarrant County College's Connect Campus were recipients of Blackboard's 2017 Catalyst Award for Inclusive Education. Kelvin earned his master's and Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Delaware. Kelvin, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks so much for having me on today. As we get to know each other and the listeners get a chance to know you, I think it might be helpful for you to share a little bit about not just your Twitter username, but I think you use it in other places too. What's the backstory on your username? Sure. So, you know, growing up as a kid and teenager, I really got into watching sci-fi movies and TV shows. And uh, one of my favorite sci-fi TV shows is from the BBC. It's called Doctor Who. And so, the, the race of uh, the alien race that he represents are called uh, Time Lords. And, you know, when I was watching, uh, though, there, there weren't really, you know, any uh, Time Lords of African descent. So, like, so I was able to uh, select uh, Black Time Lord as a Twitter handle. And luckily, you know, it was available. And so I've, I've held on to it now for probably, probably since like 2007, I think it's from around the time that I joined Twitter. So, it's uh, been about almost 14 years now. I feel like that Doctor Who reference is something that resonates with so many people. And then, of course, the ways in which historically marginalized populations get left out of entertainment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like kind of like a one-two punch where yeah. I imagine you get yeah, a lot it's a of great, people. It's a great show. I, I grew up watching uh, Tom Baker, who was uh, a very popular Doctor Who actor. He, I think he was in the role for seven years. And so... I was just hooked. And then I was excited when they brought the show back more recently and uh, continue to be a fan. Oh, that's great. Well, today you have the challenge, at least I consider it to be a big challenge, of helping us to imagine a little bit beyond where we currently can what the future of higher education is going to look like. And I, I don't know about you, Kelvin, do you feel a little bit reluctant to say, you know, once we're out of this whole thing, because too much of the time that seems like we're rushing things. I don't think it's quite going to turn out that way. Like we turned on a light switch one day. It's over. Let's have a party. I don't know. Do you hesitate saying when we're out of this? Is that a. Yeah, I, I, I hesitate as well, because, you know, if, if it's not a pandemic, it could be something also critical, like another type of pandemic. It could be 
you know, um, even issues with our with our environment, with global warming and other things, other things going on in the world that distract us. And so I think there will always will be pressure points. You know, they, they may not always be at the scale of a pandemic, but I think, you know, the writing is on the wall. And I think we really have to use this opportunity of the pandemic, kind of use it as an opportunity to really reflect upon what we've been doing in higher ed across the modalities in terms of how we teach, uh, how do we become more learner-centered, and, and how do we actually get faculty to help us get there along the way. And so, you know, there's just lots of moving pieces. And uh, this is, I think, the, the best time for us to do kind of like a, a perpetual spring cleaning of higher ed, um, regardless of you know, what's uh, maybe causing us to re-examine what we do, whether it's a pandemic or something else. But I think the time is ripe for us to to, to really reimagine uh, the work and also just be reminded of how important it is to do this um, because we're impacting uh, the livelihoods of people. Um, we're trying to, you know, fill various um, gaps in terms of skills and, and jobs, as well as just, you know, making someone more well-rounded as an educated person. So, there's lots, lots at stake, and uh, we, we have to do our due diligence to do our part to, to make improvements in what we do. I loved, I ca- captured a couple of things that you said. So I'm going to start with just re-examining what we do. What, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you want to challenge us to say, you know, this is an area where I think instead of just trying to rush and it's not even really rushing past it. It's almost rushing behind us because I see people wanting to just press the re- reset button. What would be an area that comes to mind for you of just, wow, let's not press the reset button on this. Let's not go back to how things used to be. Let's re-examine it. So let, let's start just by like, where do we need greater self-awareness, greater and, and drawing us toward more this learner-centered approach? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I mean, I I think it can involve kind of small things, but things that will still require big conversations, right? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I'm a very big proponent of making higher education much more transparent, not just to external stakeholders, but just within an institution, uh, even within academic departments. We're not always aware of what one hand is doing versus the other across people. And and I think we, we need to to have a way to kind of, you know, bring our instructional skills or or toys, so to speak, to the table so that we can kind of compare, you know, how do we actually teach intro uh, introduction to psychology? How do we teach uh, sociology courses or math courses and and have everyone kind of report in and share what do they do? You know, what types of textbooks do you use? What type of real life examples are you leveraging? And such that there we can really do a better job of unpacking what's actually going on in our institution right now. I think we get really uh, busy, you know, once the semester or once the academic year begins and continues, it's very hard for us to take kind of a retrospective approach and really kind of just understand what actually happened during the year. And so I, I think the pandemic has really in some ways forced us to really re-examine, yeah, how do we teach? What are we teaching? What could we be doing differently? And my hope is that those conversations will not just be focused on, you know, figuring out how to do this uh, online or remote instruction, but just in general, you know, um, it gives us a chance to really dust the cobwebs away, 
you know, we get a Swiffer and try to figure out, you know, kind of collectively, what are the good practices uh, that, uh, that are out already out there? And what can we do to scale those, not just within disciplines, but hopefully across disciplines and across academic departments and, and community colleges and universities? And, and again, it's really encouraging faculty, giving them the space to be very transparent with each other and for institutions to find ways to be transparent with each other in ways where they're not going to be threatened. Because I think, you know, schools are reluctant to do that because they, they see each other as competitors when really we're in this together. Uh, our learners need us to be much more mindful of the work um, and, and, and sharing those good practices and then collecting data around, are they still good practices or are there other things out there we should be paying attention to? Those are the conversations we need to have. And it starts with just, you know, people having these conversations at their own institutions and then growing it from there. So it's some small moves, but it does require, you know, patience and time and, and trust because there's, unfortunately, there's lots of fear from faculty, from administrators about perhaps sharing too much when really I think we need to flip this and say, well, how can we share much more to the benefit of our students, the, the, the learners that we're serving? We just wrapped up a course design intensive. And while mm. the program as a whole, it was a, over a span of three weeks and it definitely lived up to the intensive. <laughs> but the part about it that wasn't intensive was just the part where we asked them to make a screencast that just showed, a just give us a tour. Give us a tour of what it is that you created and the amount of joy that people experienced having this opportunity to make their work visible. And then, of course, we got permission that we can share it within our broader university community. I mean, it brings people joy when you give them opportunities to share the work they're doing. And then it just becomes infectious. And it just, it was just, like, it was incredible because, I mean, this has been such a difficult time. So to give people an opportunity to really celebrate what they've been discovering, to have the chance to be more transparent in the ways that you describe. So that, I, and I also appreciate how you began. This is small. I think sometimes we make a bigger deal out of it. If they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. But just to give an invitation <laughs> to the opportunity, you might be surprised and delighted at what you find by just a small invitation. But as you said, it's actually an invitation to have these really big, important conversations that we don't often stop and take the time to do. So you talked about re-examining what we do. We can do these small things, have these small invitations to share our work and then see what happens. The second thing that you said, Calvin, to reimagine the work. What's something mm -hmm. that comes, I'm sure there's a million things, but what's something that comes to mind for you as you start to think about how might we be reimagining the work. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've had this conversation with different colleagues and I think it changes slightly with every conversation, but I think just given, for example, my background is more in uh, the administration of online learning courses and programs over the past almost 20 years, I kind of come from that space, but I think about it is it's also very broad. Like, for example, you know, we are for lots of different reasons, especially because, you know, schools are receive federal money to support financial aid for students. We're uh, kind of bound and shackled by the credit hour, right? Which is a very archaic way of measuring 
and, and Paul LeBlanc, uh, the president of Southern New Hampshire, talks about this. Credit Hour is very good about measuring butts in seats, but not uh, doesn't really measure or tell us anything about how much students learn or what competencies they've mastered. And so my hope is that we can, again, maybe come up with a parallel system because, you know, it would be, to your point earlier, you can't just kind of stop the ride abruptly um, and, and then start a new thing. So, but my hope is that we can have a parallel system set up such that schools will have an opportunity to pilot and then hopefully scale more competency-based courses and programs, right? So courses and programs that are defined by, again, measurable competencies that learners can demonstrate mastery of or some level of competency of, and then they move on to the next course, right, or the next set of competencies. And so that's what I really hope that we can actually get to. You know, our model is very addicted to kind of how things are now because of the federal regulations. It's that's kind of where we're at. And, and schools, of course, need the training, the education around what competency-based education is. Lots of schools have their own definitions of those. But if we can, you know, kind of move in that direction, I think that would be great. I think we definitely need to leverage appropriate adoption of technologies, whether they are, you know, adaptive learning platforms or even using uh, success coaches, you know, the folks that will kind of intervene uh, to reach out to students when uh, they need that extra push and to also almost be kind of like a social worker in a way, right? Because, you know, as we know, learners, whether they are non-traditional or the new traditional students, uh, adult students, we all have many things going on, especially given the impact that the uh, pandemic has had on us. So having some more structured outreach to learners to help them achieve their, their goals and their learning credentials. I mean, I think that's, that will continue to be important and hopefully more resources will be provided uh, to students to, to make all of that happen. And I think we need to do just do also a better job of reimagining our learning experiences. So there, there's lots of good research out there about learning science and about how, how we learn material and, uh, you know, the, the, the many of us who teach, you know, we're leveraging perhaps uh, tools and resources that are not designed really to help students, uh, you know, learn the material. You know, our lectures are still perhaps way too long than they need to be. Yet they need to be smaller and chunked. And, and so those are some things that readily kind of come to mind. But I think a lot of it, too, is like data collection, right? Like, I don't know if we really do a great job other than telling, you know, giving students a, a course evaluation survey at the end, we basically ask them, you know, what was your experience like? And, and I think we need to, to leverage other data, um, better data to, find, to, to make hopefully more informed decisions that will help us improve the pedagogy, hopefully help improve our uh, student services and the access to those student services around a student schedule. So we can't make everything on campus uh, we don't have to make everything online either, but we're going to have to have various options for folks so that there'll be a nice menu of student services uh, as well that, that uh, work for a student's uh, very busy and hectic uh, lifestyle. Yeah, one of the, the great challenges, of course, is that when we start to look at what competency-based education models might look like, when we try to make things more measurable, there are those who talk about then, what about the learning that you can't plan for? What about the learning that is unexpected or the learning that emerges in the moment? And 
while I don't tend to fall on that side, I tend to be someone who I think my background just naturally probably, I, if anything, I've been too much of a planner. If anything, I've been too much of a trying to measure things. So this is not my, right. my dog is not in this fight. But I do think these are really important conversations to have because I think binary thinking isn't going to help us. So if we were to say that there is a way to go too measurable, too scripted, too defined, what would you want to caution us against? You know what I mean? Like, where where would we say you've gone too far in not recognizing that learning is messy and unpredictable? And sometimes you get a group of people together and you learn things none of you ever could have planned. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, I, I think I think we have to, um, in order to protect this idea of learner centered approaches or learner centered teaching, I think it, it always goes back to us finding a way to find out what needs to change in our perception of the competencies and then how we measure them or, you know, the, the, the resources that we put in front of students to hopefully help them uh, acquire the knowledge, skills, dispositions that they're going to need to be successful uh, in their lives as well as in the world of work. And I would just caution us to not forget the learner and, and really, you know, uh, figuring out maybe through focus groups, uh, talking with employers as well, you know, what skills, what competencies are the students truly mastering? You know, uh, what, what is the shelf life of those things? Are there other types of learning experiences we can provide in a program that will really help um, someone be, you know, ready to take on certain types of, um, certain types of jobs or to be just prepared to take on those jobs later on? And so, Again, bigger conversations. I think you know schools like Western Governors University and others are really doing a good job of that. I mean, I think you know the employers of their students they think very highly of their students. Uh, their school of education is very strong in terms of their uh, certification exam scores for their students for certain programs. And so, not that WGU is uh, their model is going to work for everyone, but I think there are some lessons learned. I think from some of these larger providers of competency-based models that I think we need to have, you know, deeper conversations with, um, you know, Southern New Hampshire as, as well and, and others. Um, uh, Capella also has her FlexPath model. And so I think there's opportunities to learn there, but the voice of the student, the, the student's learning experience, um, how the learner is being perceived out in the world and making sure that we bring that information back. And then that will help us, I think, you know, either add new competencies to our programs and courses and programs, or maybe do away with some, right? So that we have to always be in this uh, mindset of, you know, things change and, and, and our programs have to change perhaps more readily than what we've been doing in the past, you know, kind of, you know, waiting a year or two to make changes. Maybe there's an opportunity for a more agile approach, um, for certain courses and programs uh, to, to make them stand out and uh, memorable to, to the student. I love the ideas that you're describing as far as um, the being more agile. And also I, I was, I'm always trying to translate because I'm thinking, oh gosh, how long would it ever take us to get in my institution to get to something like competency-based education? We don't have to wait until the federal guidelines catch up with us. Right. We don't have to wait until our particular institution or our particular program were to get to something like that. 
we can really shrink it down. And one of the things I have found just really rich and helpful in my own teaching is just, and there's many people who have written about this and studied this, but just being more transparent about why we're doing stuff. And and in my business ethics class, I added in, I was very hesitant in it. I added in Mike Caulfield's SIFT framework. And this is a framework that helps people be able to evaluate the sources they're reading, as opposed to some of the outdated ones that aren't keeping up (laughs) with today's media environment. And I was really hesitant because you'd go, well, business ethics, how does that relate to news, you know, information literacy? And you go, well, I was having them bring business ethics news stories into the class. And in 2020, I wasn't liking what I was seeing about some of the stuff around the business aspects of COVID. Right. I, I was, it was disturbing. But what I found to be so helpful is twofold. One is the transparency with which they had to do a lot of work. It was a, it was a high flex class and, and a lot of it was asynchronous, a lot of work. But we started at the place, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just why are we doing this as a class, but you mentioned being student centered. So how do you get your news today? What do you like about what, where you get it from? What works for you? What's well, not working? Is there anything that you would change about it? So whatever it is that you're teaching to have a place where we might meet them. And sometimes the person's not going to know if I took a class about something that I knew nothing about, then that's right. kind of where we have to get really creative to be. And Maria Anderson, when she's been on the podcast before, talks a lot about making sure to incorporate opportunities to explore. So if I don't know, but I know today, but if I didn't back in the day, if I didn't know why I'd be interested in statistics, well, my mm-hmm. goodness gracious, just imagine all the places, the data sets you could introduce me to and go, right. which one of these gigantic data sets is something that's relevant to you and your life and that you'd like to know more about? And guess what? Statistics helps you do that. So I know I've been talking mm-hmm. a lot. I'd mean, love to hear your reactions as far as how do we shrink some of this down before we can get to competency based across our program or across the institution, other ways that we might be able to kind of shrink these great ideas down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, for example, some schools and their faculty could, again, take on small things like credentials, uh, you know, certificates, where the, the, the workload is not as much as trying to find an entire, you know, 120 credit uh, Bachelor, of Pro- you know, Bachelor of Science program in X or Bachelor of Arts program in Y. So it's, t- again, taking those baby steps to, you know, uh, talk with colleagues at other institutions that are doing the work, really, you know, being uh, mindful of uh, lessons learned. Um, that's why... Um, I really like organizations like the Competency-Based Education Network, Charlotte Long, as the executive director of that organization, along with their board, has just done a great job of providing opportunities for schools that are already doing this work to create resources to help all of us who are still trying to figure out, you know, how do I actually build the right assessments that measure the competencies? And then even before that, how do I define something that is measurable? And then how do I actually structure my SIS system, for example, to track students as they move from the completion of one competency to the next. And, you know, when our current system is still based on credit hours and other, you know, other processes that are uh, long in the tooth, you know, compared to what we can do now with measuring competencies. So, you know, I I think it it is, again, just taking those small, those small uh, steps and just having conversations with peers at other institutions, again, going to conferences 
either online or face-to-face to have that uh, a deeper dive and also rewarding faculty, right? So if we're going to engage in this work, definitely you have to executive sponsors like a provost or a dean or a program director need to find resources to give the faculty, uh, as well as staff members, opportunities to talk with their counterparts at conferences or by Zoom or other other means. And so, and then maybe course releases and things to actually rebuild uh, certain courses. So it could be a really great uh, professional development opportunity for faculty, but institutions have to provide the resources to, to really help their faculty do this work because they're, of course, super busy with research, other scholarly activities. And so we have to also make it kind of worth their while as well. But also be very strategic. You know, maybe the, the low-hanging fruit are those certificates or credentials in very, you know, high popular areas like, you know, maybe in IT or uh, perhaps in nursing, right? There's uh, definitely movements already there. So there, so there might be uh, certain disciplines that lend themselves very well. But I think it, it behooves us to, as you mentioned, do this, start doing this work now because at least, you know, within the online learning market, it's getting super and super crowded. So it's not enough to say that you have this cool online learning program. And, and of course, the elites uh, will still have very strong brand recognition, but everyone else, you know, it's just going to be much harder to kind of say to the folks, hey, take my courses online when there's literally thousands of other schools that are doing it, and then maybe hundreds that are offering it at a better price point. So how will you stand out? And I think leveraging CBE courses and programs is one way to go. Also very strong student support services, as I mentioned, that will also help folks uh, hopefully get to the finish line faster as well. To that end, I wanted to explore a little bit more the idea you shared of us thinking about student support in terms of social work. I was just talking to a friend of mine who teaches in psychology and and also is a as a therapist and so we were discussing the differences between the profession of social work and the profession of psychologist and of course on the podcast a lot it's come up before we're not supposed to be therapists for our students and yet right. I do think that just this idea of helping people be able to navigate things what we were talking about by the way I wish you could have been there, Calvin. It was a great little barbecue. You could have, you could have come over. But it was just a, a, a friend had recently, they had the family had to move the mother into a home and just how difficult that was. The mother has Alzheimer's and just what a difficult challenge that was. And so we were kind of like, where's the instruction book? Like they didn't get the little book. Like when you drop your kid off at camp, they're like, you know, they might miss you for a while, but really these are the kinds of things that we'll do to help them not miss you as much while you're gone. And in our experience, we just haven't found the social work, you know, for these monumental parts of our lives. Or, or even back to the pandemic, like, where's the booklet, Kelvin, for how to do this thing that's a pandemic? So could you expand a little bit around the ways in which you could see a model of social work coming in to help our students being able to navigate their college experiences a little bit better? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a, a big fan of the uh, provost at Western Governors University. Her name is Marnie Baker-Stein. And Dr. Stein uh, has done you know, she's had conversations and in, in podcasts and conference presentations about WGU's community of care. Mm-hmm. And of course, their model is different because it, it also, the community of care also takes the faculty role and kind of unbundles it. So there's many touch points, right? So it's not just 
the person teaching the course is also faculty who serve as almost kind of like program directors, uh, as well as success coaches. And so I think schools do have to kind of figure out what, what is your community of care? Do you have a case management approach to tracking uh, students and also not putting all the burden on the faculty, right? Like, so if I'm teaching a, uh, an abnormal psychology course to a bunch of, uh, you know, psychology majors and nursing majors and other majors and my class is like 200 students, let's say, at some of the larger you know, colleges and universities, myself, I'm not going to have the time to do that. Of course, my TAs are probably not really the right people either. And so how can I provide leverage to the university or the college's advisors or maybe uh, success coaches who at least can be there when, uh, when problems occur? Really at the course level, it's, it's all about grades and non-attendance and those types of things, which then can be funneled into an early alert system that uh, advisors and student success coaches can then access. So I think institutions have to kind of, again, think about their resourcing. How can they actually have success coaches, let's say, with a caseload of, I don't know, 50 to 100 students or more, and then reach out to those folks proactively sharing, uh, to your point, uh, not necessarily trying to be a therapist to them, but reminding students of when services are available reminding them perhaps what online services are available because again students are are are, are really uh, really busy and i think the pandemic has really kind of increased this focus on online therapy right telehealth and um and so i think more and more schools are going to invest in that to give them the scale to do success coaching at a level that is uh, helpful not just around career counseling but mental health issues and physical health issues. And of course, that takes time and money. But a lot of it is also just, again, kind of mapping out what would that look like? uh, Who's going to be responsible? What type of follow-up can we provide? And I think those are some of the things that I think about. I mean, uh, as because I'm an online learning person in in the past, I've, I've done little things like, you know, how can we actually build an online tutoring program? Because you know, we were telling students, hey, you could take all these courses online, but you have to come to campus for a tutor that breaks the whole model, right? So, so I tried to do it from that standpoint of just kind of taking those steps. But the approach for a community care approach, it needs to be much more comprehensive and finding ways to, again, leverage data to make improvements in the services. Even things like online tutoring now, you know, there are companies like tutor.com where even faculty can find out uh, what are the money points that their students are bringing to tutoring sessions. You know, sometimes there's a big wall between what happens with tutors and what happens in the classroom. And so if we can even make those walls leakier where data can be shared, that can help us with our community of, of care approach in terms of helping those students by giving the faculty the data that they need to maybe do course corrects or to do special digital office hours or online learning office hours where they focus on those money points. I love the work of Sarah Goldrick Rabb and of course, so many of her team and researchers on the real college Mm -hmm. movement. And even just something as simple as putting a basic needs statement in our syllabi, which to me, when I first heard about it, seemed purely informative, a very important informative, but I didn't also understand when I initially heard about this practice that it also reduces the stigma 
Oh, mm-hmm. because this is in a syllabus means I'm not the only one who's sitting here hungry and doesn't have enough to eat. There are other people because if there's enough people that they put it in a syllabus, probably it means I'm not the only one. I love that we can accomplish both aims in both being transparent about the information, but also helping people feel that it's okay and there are supports for you. I just, I love that. Anytime we can do more of that, I think is so helpful. Yeah, Sarah's work is great. And, and you know, your example just even reminded me of real basic thing, like who doesn't like uh, extra credit points, right? And so could you build into your course an opportunity, whether it's for credit or, or for extra credit, for students to even evaluate the services, right? So you give them the information about what's available. And even if they don't utilize it, have them even, you know, kind of send you a description of their perception. You know, do you think this would would have been helpful for you if you needed the services? You know, what's what's missing? And so because we see different snapshots of our student body every semester, it would be great to give students an opportunity to tell us, are we on the right path in terms of meeting their needs? Yeah, I love that. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I just wanted to quickly recommend there was an article that came out. The authors are Martha Burtis, Matthew Cheney, Robin DeRosa, Hannah Yunself, and Natalie Smith. And it's entitled Chronic Illness is a Part of College Life. And one of the things I've been reading a lot by members of the disability community who I follow on social media is a lot of talk around, hey, everyone, if you were able to provide these accommodations to people en masse and as quickly as you did during the pandemic, why are we not hearing enough conversation about these things continuing and just becoming a normal part of higher education? And Mm -hmm. one normal part of higher education that I know I need to continue to expand my imagination around is this idea of chronic illness and, and both from a standpoint of our students so that I can continue to become more student-centered, but also our colleagues. And so it's just a really helpful look. They each share different stories, how this has impacted their lives, how it's impacted their classes, students, all kinds of things. It's a really nice resource. I encourage mm. people to go and to read it. And ironically, I'm realizing now I didn't make the connection while we were talking. It's a blog that's posted on the Hope for College, and that is the organization that Sarah Goldrick Rab leads. So yes, it's on their medium um, blog post. So I'll I'll send that to everybody in the recommendations. And Kelvin, what would you like to recommend to us today? Well, uh, you know, I I have so many, but um, I mean, you got time, you got time. (laughs) Okay, a couple. So I'll I'll be quick, but I have a couple, Um, you know, I mentioned the the competency based education network would highly recommend listeners uh, check out their webpage. It's a great resource in the sense that it allows you to meet folks who are Again, engaged in this work at a lot of different levels. Again, there are going to be people from schools like uh, WGU and Southern New Hampshire and others that have been doing competency-based education for years, as well as many who are just getting started, as well as those in in between. And so there's uh, usually an annual uh, conference. Uh, This year is actually literally in my backyard almost. It's uh, in uh, near downtown Austin. I live in kind of northern Austin, Texas. So Mm -hmm. It's uh, definitely worth checking out and it'll actually, the the conference will actually be in November, but to to find out more, you just go to www.cbenetwork.org. And if you can't come to the conference, that's okay. Uh, There's also some publications there 
that will help you have a better understanding um, about what competency-based education is all about. And so that's, that's one resource. I also am very interested in kind of this where things are moving in, in terms of resources for faculty that hopefully many faculty will take part in. I'm very interested in adaptive courseware and there are you know, some really good examples of, of institutions that are leveraging tools like Wiley uh, has a, a tool called uh, Zybooks uh, that's Z-Y-B-O-O-K-S. And so Zybooks is a great resource. Uh, many schools use their resources to kind of help uh, educate folks on everything from computer programming to math concepts. And it gives students kind of an experiential learning uh, experience, you know, grappling with these types of materials. It really kind of replaces a traditional textbook with this adaptive, uh, you know, learning platform. So definitely check that out. And then I would also keep your eyes open. There's a, a startup company called Argos Education. Uh, a colleague of ours, Michael Feldstein and others are developing um, or have developed an adaptive learning platform that faculty will be able to kind of create their own adaptive learning courses. And, uh, and it will provide a kind of a marketplace for them to sell and or adopt um, you know, other institutions, adaptive learning courses as well. It's uh, just kind of getting started, but set your Google alerts for uh, Argos Education. You can also check out Michael Feldstein's uh, profile on LinkedIn, and there's uh, a little bit more information there when you look at some of his recent uh, posts about Argos. So I just wanted to let faculty especially know about that because that, that could actually be an interesting way for faculty to customize uh, some of their, their own adaptive courses to help uh, students in particular disciplines. Oh, that sounds incredible. That sounds mm -hmm. great. Lots for us to experiment. By the way, a side note, I recently um, was on a recent episode, we were sharing about a little tip having to do with Google Docs. And I got a text from a friend saying, Oh, my gosh, I didn't know that you just saved me so much time. So I am <laughs> gonna I am gonna quickly because you just brought it up. And we've got the time. I'm going to really encourage people to set a Google alert for topics that you care about like this. I mean, he, he was kidding, but also probably knowing Kelvin, not kidding. <laughs> that, that's how we can keep up with this information. If you're worried, I'm, how will I know when it comes out? You can set up a Google alert. You can do it on your own name. You can do it on your university's name. You can, I mean, you might not want to, depending on how big your university is, right. but you could trick it out a little bit to just get the kind of information that you want, you know, use all your Boolean logic or your putting things in quotation marks to make sure you get just the information that you're interested in. But I do find that I recently did that for my university and laughed at myself. Why did it take me this long to do this? So um, I, I think you should take him quite literally and, and follow that up a little bit. So I'm going to add that to my recommendations too. Yeah. Anything else that you wanted to share? People can easily follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You know, I, I'm, I'm very blessed to be connected to, to great folks like you, Bonnie and others who are also sharing information. I just, sometimes I just wish there was a better way for us to aggregate data in a way such that we can make higher ed a little bit more transparent. Uh, with Twitter, it's a little bit harder because it just depends on, you know, what you actually see. But, uh, and there are, there are definitely programs to kind of help with some of the aggregation, but it's, it's still challenging. Um, there's just so much going on right now that we don't know about that we need to know about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah, those opportunities where when people are able to make whatever it is that they do a little bit more open and available and then have places where you can have those conversations. But 
boy, it's both, we're not able to do it. Like you said, it's a challenge, but it's also the most remarkable opportunity. I mean, I suspect your experience is very much like that mine. If you do have a question and you ask it before you know it, you've got even more than you even knew to ask when you have these kinds of communities built up. People are incredibly generous. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're exciting times. And I think, again, people are realizing, you know, we're going to get through the pandemic. We're going to get through other challenges. But in order to do it, we need to, to be, you know, more transparent, more collaborative to move higher education forward. And, and so my, my hope is that that will happen more uh, than it's uh, happened in the past. Yeah. Well, it's been such a delight to get an opportunity to talk with you today, Kelvin. I appreciate you contributing to the teaching in higher ed community. And not this is just a drop in the bucket compared to how generous you are with your time and talents. And I just enjoyed getting to learn from you today. I'm excited for the episode to air. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It was a big pleasure to talk with you. And I'm surprised we didn't actually have an opportunity to do this uh, even sooner. But I, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and just honored to be a guest today. So thanks. I felt the same way. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes because I forgot about it until now, but we were a part of a holiday special, which you could listen to it even when it's not a holiday. But I think we were maybe wearing some sort of costumes. <laughs> there might have been some holiday hats or sweaters That's or right. something involved. So today yeah, I, we're I had a big, you know, uh, Christmas elf or something yeah, or so. that I was holding up at the screen. And, uh, and but yeah, no, that, that was that was a lot of fun. Looking forward to hopefully meeting you know, at a conference in the future face-to-face as well. So. Oh, absolutely. Well, it has been a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you. Thanks once again to Kelvin Bentley for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. It was episode number 368, so you can head over to teachinginhighered.com slash 368 to view the show notes and recommendations. And if you want to receive them in your inbox once a week, you can subscribe to our weekly update. And that weekly update has the recent episodes, show notes, recommendations, but also other recommendations that go beyond the ones we talk about on the show, quotable words, all kinds of good stuff. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.